1: Hi, this is Christy Lee from the Canadian True Crime Podcast. You're listening to Dark Poutine, a podcast about
0: Canada's creepier side with hosts Mike Brown and Scott Hemingway. Thanks to Christy Lee from the Canadian True Crime Podcast for that intro. If you haven't checked it out, it's one that inspired me to get going in the first place. Do it. It's it's great. I'm Mike Brown creator and host of dark poutine with me as usual is my good friend co-host sound engineer and human stick figure scott Hemingway. say
1: hello scott i'm a stick figure with a pot belly (laughs) it's true actually yeah it's a it's remarkable you're skinny fat it's not easy to do man
0: (laughs) no i'm I'm just fat fat
1: yeah no i got the skinny fat skinny fat yeah
0: um yeah uh shout outs to uh A couple of people who have sent us emails, Uh, Yasmin and Megan, both sent very complimentary emails. Thank you very much, ladies. Let's get to it. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes, listener discretion, and often a sense of humor is strongly advised. Your hosts are in no way experts on any of the topics we present nor are we professional journalists. We just want to entertain you with the stories we tell. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This episode of Dark Poutine is about Canada's youngest serial killer. What we'll be talking about here is disturbing not only to hear, but to research, write about, and say as well. We're talking about the murder of children. If that's something that disturbs you, and it should, if it disturbs you too much that you have to forego listening to this episode, we understand. The last episode, the murder of 12-year-old Carissa Boudreau from my hometown in Nova Scotia was particularly hard for us to get through. Uh, We always want to maintain a high level of respect for the feelings of the victims and their families. Our podcast in no way aims to glorify the murderers themselves or sensationalize their crimes. We merely want to bring dark stories to light that may be forgotten otherwise. These sad tales cry out to be told, if only to act as a warning to watch yourselves and your loved ones and as a reminder that there is true evil in the world extremely interesting to me is what makes a murderer is it nature or nurture or a bit of both perhaps through looking at the lives of these people we can find out what drives them to kill does that darkness lurk in all of us somewhere or is something specific in the dna or upbringing of these people in particular that triggers these horrifying actions that said i'm seriously considering a hard stop on episodes of child murder I chatted with Christy, who did our intro for this episode, and she decided to stop doing episodes dealing with the murders of children, too. I can see why. Not to say that a murder of an adult is any less heinous or less devastating to a family, but there is something about the death of a child at the hands of another that is just repulsive. Perhaps it's their real innocence. Talking about these things is harder than you might think. I've even considered stopping dark poutine altogether and going on to lighter fare like movies, stupid news, farts and poop. I'll probably do that anyway as a second project and a palate cleanser. You're probably doing the last two right now. Farting and pooping? Yeah. I probably am. But there are some cases I feel compelled to cover, like Clifford Olson, the beast of B.C. He stalked and took children from this very neighborhood. I'm thinking we'll leave that alone for now and uh, cover it on a future episode, like far in the future. Yes. Let's get through this one first. You've been warned. You can turn back now if you need to. From the fall of 1956 until early 1957 in Toronto, Ontario, three children ranging in age from nine years to as young as four years old were brutally murdered. The 17-year-old killer was s- an sexual sadist. Who we're talking about here was ironically
1: named peter woodcock i kid you not yeah i i want a joke but yet yeah, no Yep. I just when when you find out about this guy's crimes it yeah you can't it, it removes uh much capacity for humor yep
0: woodcock later changed his name to david michael Krueger. we assume to escape the stigma of his real name out of respect for his victims we'll refer to him by the name he was best known uh we're not helping him to hide his responsibility for his crimes if that makes sense to you
1: no it makes total sense to me yeah he, uh, he can't he can't try to escape it we'll do what we can to make sure that uh, yeah he's no one there's accountability for what he's done yeah
0: As well as the three murders in the 1950s, Woodcock would later commit a fourth murder. On July 13, 1991, during his first unsupervised day pass in 34 years, with the help of another former inmate, he murdered a man named Dennis Kerr. As far as I can find, the fact that there were 34 years between the original child murders and the killing of Dennis Kerr is the longest enforced cool-down between murders of any other serial killer. Because I know, like uh, Edmund Kemper, because he was in jail, there was a big period of time where he didn't kill, but it was not thirty-four years. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and, once yeah, you typically once you're uh, labeled a serial killer, you're not getting out. Yeah. But we're talking about the fifties here, so I don't. Yeah. I don't even know if that label existed. I can't remember. No, I don't think it
0: did. Let's find out what happened. Peter Woodcock was born out of wedlock on March 5, 1939, in a hospital in Peterborough, Ontario, a city to the northeast of Toronto. There are some conflicting reports that his mother, Juanita Woodcock, was supposed to have been either a 17-year-old factory worker or a 19-year-old prostitute. I don't think it really matters. It is said that his father was a 19-year-old soldier from the area. Closely monitored by the Children's Aid Society of the day, Peter stayed with his mother for a month and she breastfed him. He cried all the time and was a, quote, feeding problem. Unable to handle him, Juanita finally gave Peter up. He was bounced from foster home to foster home to prevent him from bonding with any family in particular until a permanent foster family could be found. For the first year of Peter Woodcock's life, he cried all day and rarely ate, making him underweight. He was terrified of people screaming if they came near him. He sounds like a great kid. Mm. His speech at nearly two years old was described as bizarre and incoherent whining. Not only was Peter Woodcock unadoptable, he did not always receive premium child care at the hands of his foster families. Some of them were in it just for the money paid to them by the Children's Aid Society. They could have cared less about this weird mealing brat who was nothing more than a meal ticket. He was even hospitalized as an infant after an alleged beating at the hands of one of his caregivers. Jesus. Yep.
1: Talk about like like no chance right from the beginning. Yeah. You've mentioned the whole uh, you born or created. Yeah. uh, Or is it a combination? You can kind of see both of those manifesting here. Yep.
0: Uh, By this time, Peter may have developed a mental condition known as reactive attachment disorder or RAD. It's a rare condition of emotional dysfunction in which a baby or child cannot form a bond with its parents or caregivers due to early neglect or mistreatment. Hmm. This would explain a a lot about his uh, behavioral issues. But as psychiatry was in its infancy, this diagnosis would have been highly unlikely. I don't think it even existed. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Woodcock was taken in permanently three years old by Frank and Susan Maynard the Maynards were perpetual foster parents but Peter was more than just another child they cared for perhaps they felt sorry for the boy and decided to give him a chance that he had to have a stable and loving family they didn't legally adopt him however perhaps they wanted to keep a skate open or something <laughs> Maybe the kid was kind of weird Yeah. Uh, but you know it seemed like they were trying The upper middle class family from Toronto had a natural son of their own, George, who was 10 years older than Peter. Eh, They never really connected. Peter was initially still screaming at strangers and looked sickly, but eventually he started to gain weight, presumably from some consistent home cooking. The kids in the neighborhood thought Peter was weird and didn't want to play with him. His behavioral issues persisted. When Peter was five, the Maynards sought medical help for his strange behavior, which included wandering off on his own. The Maynards had gone to go searching for him multiple times. Uh, One time he was found cowering under some shrubs. He said he was hiding from the other kids and wanted to stay out where God could protect him.
1: That makes sense.
0: I guess. (laughs) No. No. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. Peter was acting strangely at home, too. Susan came home one day to find her pet canary was not only dead, but Peter was having his own little funeral for it. Nothing creepy there. Oh. The bird was on the family's piano, surrounded by candles. He claimed that the dog had murdered the canary. I guess it ate mm-hmm. his homework and murdered the canary. Those damn dogs. Right? Mm hmm. And drove the car family car off a cliff. The dog did? Yeah. Mm. Or so not? No, that make... was Toonz's the driving cat. Oh. Uh. I can get these confused you must anyway peter smashed things defaced the dining room table carving weird symbols into it and cut up his socks woodcock later claimed that his mother beat him and this is what led to his problems this has not been substantiated by his older brother who said that stuff didn't happen in the home hmm. unable to get along in public school uh peter was sent to a private school with a smaller population of kids, but he still managed to cause grief. Uh, Being the weird kid in the neighborhood, Peter Woodcock spent most of his time alone, and he filled a lot of his days creating fantasy worlds in his mind where he was the king and could do whatever he pleased and whenever he wanted. Obviously, he didn't fit in. Uh, Susan Maynard thought legally adopting Peter might help, but she was warned by numerous people that this was not a good idea. They tried numerous schools specifically set up to help kids like Peter. As it was the 50s, a lot of progress had yet to be made in the mental health professions. But Peter was closely watched by the Children's Aid Society, as he was still considered a foster child and a ward of them. Uh, From Mark Borey's book, By Reason of Insanity, while being assessed for placement at a school for disturbed children at 11, Woodcock was described as, Slight in build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open, worried facial expression, sometimes screwing, screwing up of eyes, walks brisk and erect, moves rapidly, darts ahead, interested and questioning constantly in conversation. Further on, something a little more ominous. When a children's aid worker who was helping with the assessment walked with him through the crowded Canadian National Exhibition Grounds on an August day, Peter turned to him and said, I wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all the children. Jeez. Yeah, we've talked about it a bit. I think, you know, he sort of reminds me like of Terry Driver, just a mixed up kid right from
1: the beginning. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, some parallels there. But I I think uh, Woodcock's uh, path is quite a lot more horrific than terry's not to diminish uh, terry's troubled youth but it's there's definitely some um yeah some linkage between the two in regards to their upbringing yeah interesting right yeah uh
0: he was 11 at the time remember so uh when they put him into the school uh he was there for a few years he uh he claimed his first sexual consensual sex with a 12-year-old girl at his boarding school happened when he was 13, uh, but they were caught by the staff before anything could really happen, and they got balled out for it. He claimed that he was beginning to develop what he called a hypersex drive. At one point, he was caught fondling an 11-year-old girl, and this prevented him from being released when others typically were at 14. His weird behavior improved slightly at the Sunnyside School for Disturbed Children in Kingston, but many believe that once he was out of the structured environment and back home with the Maynards in September of 1954, he would backslide. So going back home at 15, and I guess they were right they, yep. that uh, things wouldn't go well. Yeah, yeah. Probably the only thing Peter Woodcock took away from his school experience in Kingston was an ability to charm and to manipulate adults the we're seeing some traits of the psychopath here
1: yeah, it's kind of like the prison makes you a better criminal yeah very
0: interesting on his return home neighborhood kids recognized him at school and began picking on him just where they left off he changed schools again to bluerdale college school so he could be more anonymous he was there from grades 9 to 11 but they still lived in the same place and the local kids Used to chase him on his new pride and joy, a red and white three-speed bike. He rode his bike everywhere. It helped him escape both physically and mentally. In 1956, uh, so he's 17 by now, he even got a job at Casa a gothic castle in Toronto that serves as a museum and art gallery, and he parked cars there. Hmm. I wonder if, if they advertise that anywhere on their
1: <laughs> former serial killer. No, I don't, I don't I don't I don't think that's the best marketing plan. No. So I don't think that uh, But hey, who knows? Yeah. You never know.
0: Yeah. Peter's fantasies were getting darker. Although he hit it well, he was obsessed with human anatomy, rape and murder. He started conning younger children onto the handlebars of his bike for rides. Here we go. He would take them to some secluded spot and have them strip off their clothes and play sex games with them. He didn't have any sexual intercourse with these kids as he couldn't perform normally, I guess. He would get release later on when he was fantasizing about what had gone on with these kids. He wanted to go further. He was escalating. He wanted to hurt someone. In the spring of 1956 woodcock made friends with a depressed 10 year old according to him the girl wanted to die and he was willing to help her achieve that end he planned to kill her cut her up and see what she looked like on the inside the pair planned the girl's death over two weeks when they met up nothing seemed to go right although the girl was willing to die woodcock couldn't follow through with the act the girl went home and so did peter woodcock it was late enough that uh, her parents had become very worried and called the police who questioned their daughter and uh, they ended up coming over to Peter Woodcock's house to have a conversation with him. Uh, when confronted by his foster parents and the police, he threatened to hurt himself so the family wouldn't be embarrassed after the police visit. So he said, you know, I'll, I'd rather kill myself. If you want me to, I'll kill myself. Yeah, Classic manipulation. Yep. After Peter's mother left the room frustrated, Mr. Maynard said, don't pick up any more children. So I guess his dad knew. Yeah, you know, I, and
1: I'm understandably completely skeptical of his claim about the girl who wanted to die at the age of 10. I think when he says uh, she was willing but he uh, couldn't go through with it, I think it's more he had planned to kill her and he couldn't go through with it. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. I guess, you know, unless we hear from her, we don't know for I, sure. I, could there maybe have been talk about that and stuff? But yeah, but I, I don't – For I, I can't imagine a 10-year-old yeah, having I mean, a 10-year-old. I, mean, I can't imagine a, a 10-year-old, a, a 10-year-old um, having uh, any grasp or concept of what that even is. So yeah. I think he wanted to kill her and in, at that point in his life was unable to and backed out. Yeah. Fuck him.
0: Yeah. Over the intervening months, Woodcock's attacks uh, on children around Toronto became increasingly violent. He choked some unconscious, stripping them and leaving them naked after fondling them. He loved his new bike, this one red and green, purchased with cash earned from his Castle home gig. He was traveling further outside the neighborhood for his nefarious adventures so he could maintain more anonymity. He would also avoid the areas he'd already committed assaults, so he was getting savvy in his crimes, too. Yep. He didn't want to run into anybody who may be able to identify him. The rage inside Peter Woodcock was building. He hated everyone and was strangely obsessed with books about human anatomy, and he would look at them while thinking about the assaults he was committing. Oof. On September 16th, 1956, Peter Woodcock crossed the line from sexual assault to murder. Wayne Millett, a seven-year-old from eastern Ontario, was in Toronto to visit his grandmother. Wayne's three older brothers took off to head downtown while Wayne played in his grandmother's front yard. His parents were in the house visiting. As it began to get dark out, Irene, Wayne Millett's mother, headed to the door to call her son inside. He was nowhere to be found. His father, Jack, thought Wayne was with his older brothers, but when they returned, saying that they'd left Wayne in the yard alone, panic set in and the police were called. Wayne had wandered off to play near the train tracks in the neighborhood. The tracks were obscured from the view of the houses by a buffer of trees and a chain link fence with a path between the fence and tracks. This is where Wayne Millette met Peter Woodcock and his own fate. Mm-hmm. In Mark Borey's book, By Reason of Insanity, Peter Woodcock is quoted as saying, I took him in there and I told him we could watch the trains together. Then I tried to get him to play sex games. He got scared. My alien self took over. I shoved his face down into the dirt and he stopped breathing. I knew he was gone when I heard the death rattle. In fact, the murder of Wayne Millett had been far more savage Upon examination, Wayne was found to have had bits of garbage stuffed into his mouth. When his clothes were removed, it was apparent from the bruising on his body that he'd been repeatedly kicked. There were also bite marks evident on his body. His killer had redressed him after the attack, and they made forensic casts of the bite marks. Other evidence included pennies having been scattered near the body and someone had defecated nearby yuck Jeez. Wayne was identified and the police set to work looking for the killer they investigated a few false leads think it was a pervert who'd been caught flashing people in the area before one lead that cops dismissed at first was that the Millette boy had been seen in the company of a skinny youth with a snazzy bicycle there were reports of a boy leaving the area on a bicycle pedaling fast cops thought he may have seen something that scared him and really wanted to chat with them. I guess they thought that it was an adult crime and they didn't want to think that a kid could have done
1: this. I think it, even now it's hard to uh, accept when kids kill. It's very, very difficult to to accept that. And so I can imagine back then it, it probably is not even something that enters their mind. There's a new podcast coming
0: out just about that specific thing. It's oh, wow. about killer kids. Um, I've been back and forth with them a couple of times over Twitter. Mm. So you might want to, if you, if you want to, check them out. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, police later learned that uh, a security guard in the area had a weird conversation with a youth who later turned out to be Woodcock. The exchange went like this. The boy asked the security guard, do they ever find any bodies in these bushes? What would you do if you found a body in the bushes? i would call police the guard answered aren't you a policeman woodcock asked no the guard answered the guard asked woodcock if he had seen a body no but i saw a boy run out of the bushes he looked just like me wow (laughs) yeah well because it was you (laughs) woodcock got on his bicycle and took off now the cops had a very good description of someone they really wanted to talk to and even published a drawing that very much resembled Woodcock with his bike in local papers and posted it in the public schools, but interestingly, not the private one that Woodcock went to. It was not Peter Woodcock who was picked up for the murder of Wayne Millett initially. Another boy, 14-year-old Ronald Mowat, had skipped school and was hiding out in a crawl space under the family's porch for four days, fearing repercussions for truancy. When he was found, police thought they had their man. Even though Moet's parents gave an alibi for him at the time of the Millette murder, they wanted someone to pay for the murder of a seven-year-old and this guy seemed to fit the bill. Mowat quickly was wrongfully convicted of manslaughter in youth court and sent to the, a reformatory in Guelph based on weak circumstantial evidence
1: a poor guy you're right like it all he was to, doing was skipping school to make a terrible terrible disgusting situation worse to have some poor innocent fella pulled into it yep
0: 14 years
1: old yeah yeah absolutely don't skip school
0: yeah Peter Woodcock had enjoyed his previous crime so much and having gotten gotten away with it he wanted to do it again he began planning the next event. This time in the lower uh, class Toronto neighborhood of Cabbage Town. I'm not sure if it's lower class now, but it Mm -hmm. was then. Peter Woodcock had scouted out an area for his next kill. He chose a secluded bit of shoreline for the deed. Peter Woodcock met nine-year-old Gary Morris at a local market and convinced him to come for a ride on his bike. Same MO. Woodcock took the boy to his predetermined killing ground. There he strangled Morris into unconsciousness stripped him, and examined the naked child. Then he attacked the boy, brutally beating him and viciously biting his neck. Gary Morris died of a ruptured liver due to the savage beating. Jesus. Afterward, even Peter Woodcock was horrified by the mistakes he had made, referring to his murders, thinking, my God, it has got to stop. Gary Morris had run away before, so when he didn't come home, his family thought he'd finally gone to join the circus like he'd talked about doing. I thought that was like run away and join the circus i thought that was like a joke
1: uh, and i i struggle to think like it's your nine-year-old goes i get that it's the 1950s yeah. there was no facebook you know there was no social media Nine. Uh, the techno but like to just like i can't imagine your nine-year-old goes missing Like eh, he always wanted to be a carny yeah like it i'm sure there's more to it i'm sure the family was quite panicked and everything but just yeah yeah he always wanted to be a carny Yeah. Again, people
0: had seen a youth on a bike ride off with Gary Morris. The police in two districts didn't trust each other at the time and connections were not made about the Gary Morris murder and this previous one. Mm. There were no good suspects or other leads. On New Year's Day, 1957, an unnamed little girl was molested and strangled near an underpass, but she did not die. She gave Toronto police a now familiar description of a youth, who had a fancy bicycle and had attacked her in the same way. So, you know... Mm. On January 19th, 1957, Peter Woodcock would strike again. This time his victim would not get away. On Danforth Avenue, four-year-old Carol Voice was playing with an older boy outside an apartment where the children's parents were socializing. A boy on a bike approached, and after some discussion about who wanted to come for a bike ride the boy opted to take carol voice with him woodcock would later indicate he chose her because she was smaller and would be easier to control like so crazy yeah witnesses later reported seeing carol voice riding along on the handlebars of a of a skinny youth's bicycle after discovering carol was missing her parents frantically searched police were called and a large search party was put together to search for the four-year-old girl. Just after 11 p.m., police found Carol Voice dead and mutilated near the Bloor Viaduct. Her killer had choked her unconscious, stripped and brutalized her as he had done to so many before. After molesting her, he killed her by jamming a stick into her body through her pelvis. I said pelvis because I didn't want to say it. I think we get it, and... Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. He had slipped uh, when scrambling back up the bank trying to leave the scene of the crime and angrily returned to give the dead girl one last hard kick in the head. A few people saw Woodcock leaving the ravine. He even stopped and told one man, if there's a murder down there, they're going to try and blame it on me.
1: I can't understand. Like, I'm trying to... Think about his logic there. Put yourself in the shoes of this lunatic or in the mind of this lunatic. Like, is that supposed to be a cover? No, like, I
0: don't think so. I think this is the point where he's like, holy crap, I can't control myself.
1: So it's a cry? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep.
0: Yeah. Because doing something stupid like that, it's like walk up to somebody and say, if there's a murder down there, they'll try to blame it on me. Like,
1: hey. it's like walking up to a cop saying, I didn't rob that bank.
0: Yeah, with the big bag of money and
1: blue paint all over your face. If it turns out it was it was Rob, don't look at me.
0: Yeah. Oh. Yep. Even a fellow student who went to Woodcock School saw him in the area. The manhunt was on. Finally, cops had made some connections between the murders, the last two at least. Ronald Mowat was already in, in jail doing time for the Wayne Millett murder. A $5,000 reward was posted two days after the murder of carol voice police investigators finally put two and two together they recalled the incident with the little girl in march 1956 who had been molested in the ravine and talked to peter woodcock about about killing her and we had that discussion earlier mm-hmm. so peter woodcock was arrested on his, at school that monday morning and this was the last time woodcock would see freedom for a very long time Peter Woodcock cracked and started talking right away when he was assured his mother would not be able to get at him in jail. He was more afraid of her than he was going to prison. Here's his statement to police from January 21st, 1957. The first time this happened was in March. You already know the details about that, about the girl. And from then until now, I have actually attacked many children, even though I love children as a rule. I have felt sexually inclined to, I won't go into the number of cases, but will say that there must have been about 11 or 12 of them before I met the girl. That is for this case. I took her for a ride to the viaduct, as you fellows know about it now, where I subdued her, and I don't know what I did, but she was dead before I realized what I had done, and that was about it. Do you want to know from the last time I left her and so on? You want to know how I subdued her, I suppose. Well, first of all, I choked her. This is very gruesome, I know. Then I stuck fingers in her eyes. Stuck my fingers in her eyes. I don't know why I did that. Isn't it awful? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is very awful, young man. And then I tried to clamber up the bank. I was frightened by what I did. And as I clambered up the little gully there, I slipped and my feet hit her head so he's
1: obviously not owning up to no 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 he's the can the the it's odd how you know he's willing to admit to murder but not kicking the head well i mean it's like his little thing right yeah yeah
0: i don't know then i left her circled back on the other side and you saw my tracks took one last look and left and that's all but it happened so suddenly i don't know I can tell you right now that I don't want a trial before a jury. The reason why my parents were not aware of my sickness is because I never told them. I was too ashamed. Do you blame me? I feel relieved now that I have told you the truth because I was worried. Whatever happens, I don't want to go home tonight. I don't want to face my parents. Signed, Peter Maynard. Yeah, don't worry. You won't be going home to see your parents. No, I don't think there's any danger of that happening. He would admit to lots more later on, including the murders of Gary Morris and Wayne Millett. He admitted to the Millett murder as he was angry that someone else had been given credit for something he had done. Interestingly, Mowat was not let out of jail right away. The cops and other people in the system had a bit of egg on their faces, to say the least. having convicted an innocent young man. I almost burped there. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Peter Woodcock, the five-foot-five-and-a-half-inch killer of three Toronto-area children, was tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to a maximum-security psychiatric institution for treatment. He would spend 34 years in mental hospitals.
1: Well, I think we should, I mean, we stated the time frame multiple times, but it was the 1950s, their interpretation or their view of insanity is far different than how it's uh, viewed now. I mean, I think back then, if you had the vapors, they'd probably call you uh, insane. insane. And so uh, it's there.
0: uh, He's like Jeffrey Dahmer in a way. Like, I don't I don't think that he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity today.
1: No, I don't think so. No, no. But again, 1950s, the understanding of the human mind was just in its infancy, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Freud and Jung had done their thing already, but yeah, we understand a little more now.
1: Yeah, and, and we still don't fully understand things, but we know especially, a lot more. Especially your mind. Oh, dear God. Mm-hmm. I don't even understand it. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, I, I never will. Anyway— uh, it's said that Peter Woodcock enjoyed the attention paid to him by older homosexual patients in the in the hospital. Blech. I wonder what kind of attention that was. Hmm. Cre- handshakes. Cre- creepy handshakes. Peter was depressed and hurt himself on a few occasions. He was heavily medicated on the drugs of the day and psychiatrists went to work trying to treat the sick young man. He was even treated with LSD in the 1960s. Hmm they wanted to reveal his quirks and give some insight into the inner workings of his twisted mind peter liked lsd and its attendant trip to another world by way of hallucinations of course uh not sure what actual benefit it had on his treatment no, i don't think he cared either no he's tripping yeah uh we'll be covering lsd treatments as a psychiatric tool in canada during the 1960s on the next episode i can't wait for that yeah so here in uh the lower mainland was a a hospital called the hollywood sanitarium and uh and they called it the hollywood sanitarium because movie stars would come here to dry out from you know exhaustion aka alcoholism and addiction mm. and they were treated there with lsd so uh we won't reveal too much here but uh I have a lot of research that I've done and and I have talked to people who were actually there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. It's fascinating. So although depressed, Peter did show signs of improvement over the years. He became a model inmate slash patient. He did not participate, however, in the treatment geared towards sexual predators like himself and continued to have deviant sexual thoughts. He convinced other patients to perform oral sex on him in return for cigarettes. So that's a model patient.
1: <laughs> Jeez. I guess yeah. I, maybe they didn't know. Well, I guess because it's a transaction. No, uh, they got sick. You know, cigarettes. Yeah.
0: He was adamant uh, that his name change uh, to Michael David Kruger was not to pay homage to Freddy Krueger, the pedophile murderer in The Nightmare on Elm Street Films. I'm sure that was just an uh, added benefit for him. <laughs> uh, he did start the name change process uh, before the first film was released, about two years before. But he did tell Arthur, uh, author Mark Bory, some people ask me if I'm related to Freddy Krueger. I say he's my cousin. He's not really the black sheep of the family. His three sons are mean, vicious, and cruel. Jeez. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes. Woodcock, now Kruger, started to get supervised day passes during one. He even went to see Silence of the Lambs with workers from the institution.
1: So that you take a serial killer to see a movie about serial killers. There's just no reasoning behind that. Like it, y- that's poor uh, medical care.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think there were some oversights in in
1: maybe they thought it has lambs in the title. Maybe they thought <laughs> maybe it was like a cartoon. They thought it was like Sean 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 the Sheep or whatever that is. You know, it's like,
0: like a si- it was a it was a silent film about sheep. Yeah, or lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll never guess who he <laughs> sided with in that situation.
1: Oh, could it could it be Hannibal Lecter? It was. Oh. Well, it was. go figure.
0: Kruger, who we will now refer to him as because his name has been changed at this point. Um, Kruger felt badly for how Hannibal Lecter was treated in the film. projecting much? I guess. Uh, anyway, he struck up a relationship with a fellow inmate named Bruce Hamill. Kruger enjoyed his companionships uh, and sex with the other man, Bruce Hamill was released, but he and Kruger kept in touch. Kruger's caretakers felt he had progressed with his treatment to the point where he was considered safe in the community, at least briefly, and he was offered a weekend pass. On July 31st, 1991, on his very first day pass in 34 years, he met up with Bruce Hamill and another man, Dennis Kerr. Together, in the first hour of... (laughs) Woodcock-slash-Kruger's very first day pass in 34 years, Kruger and Hamill murdered 27-year-old Dennis Kerr with a hatchet and knife that Hamill had purchased. Ah, (sighs) Jeez. Drenched in the man's blood, the pair stripped naked and sodomized Kerr's corpse. Kruger considered murdering Hamill as well, but thought better of it, leaving him in a stupor at the scene. So, Kruger put his bloody clothes back on, left the scene and walked into the nearest police station to turn himself in. I'm just, I'm sitting here with my jaw dropped. Right? (laughs) They had been planning this attack even uh, before Hamill was released. I would imagine so. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So Kruger was sent back to the hospital he was so familiar with, where he died of natural causes on March 5th, 2010, His 71st birthday. And he was also somebody who – remember people like Clifford Olson getting CPP payments in in jail? Well, he was also somebody who was receiving uh, these payments and Mm. there was a lot of stink around that. Yeah. Um, A CPP for, uh, for our American friends is the Canadian Pension Plan. Where if you are breathing in and out, I think it's at age sixty-five, you are eligible to receive uh, payments if you have worked at some point in your life. And I guess Kruger was because he had worked.
1: Yeah, the, it, I don't know. It's one about. of those things where emotionally we're outraged. I'm outraged, but then when you go by when you take the emotion out of it and and what is actually law, what is written. It may make sense, but it can be very, very difficult to separate that emotion because I want to say that's wrong. He shouldn't get a dime. Screw him.
0: Well, I believe, and I haven't researched this 100 percent, but if I remember correctly, the Canadian government government has plugged that hole.
1: Good, good, good to hear. Because people
0: like Clifford Olson were also getting a CPP payment.
1: I I just think that the – it, I think it would be wrong for people to be thinking at that time whatever you know that they were just like no oh, cool let's give him some cpp i'm sure it wasn't like oh murder who cares let's give him cpp it would have been policy but uh i'm really glad to hear and i hope to hell they did change that because no yeah i think i think murder when you kill somebody oh i think jail or, or many other crimes yeah. Uh, I think that should rem- take away your eligibility. For yeah, if TV, you're going to be in jail you know?
0: for like, because you're a serial child molester or something crazy. Yeah, like that, I don't. I don't think we're being. Should, I I don't. I don't think that guy should get money. I don't think we're being unreasonable
1: by saying that. No. Well,
0: I don't know. If you think we're unreasonable, you can tweet
1: us and uh, and let us know that, or leave us a comment on Facebook. Yeah. Or I, I don't think there'll be very many opposing no, I, so. something
0: tells me that <laughs> nobody will. Uh, so much of the research from this episode came from the books By Reason of Insanity, the Michael uh, David Michael Kruger story by Mark Borey. And Mark Borey put a lot of um, research uh, into this book, even going to interview uh, David Michael Kruger mm. uh, in the hospital. Wow. Yeah, so he really had uh, an insider's look at this. He also wrote another book called "Peter Woodcock: uh, Peter Woodcock, Canada's Youngest Serial Killer," and another book that I read was uh, "Serial Killers: The Method and Madness of Monsters" by Peter Vronsky. That those are
1: all really interesting books. So, you know, a fascinating thing would be to actually interview. Some of these authors and whatnot, because it, there would be and not so much about the have them talk about the crime, but it would be fascinating to know like what they go through emotionally yeah. researching and digging into all these yeah. things. And because it's got to be taxed. I'm sure you experience it doing your research. I do. Yeah, I definitely yeah. do.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm not doing I'm I'm writing 5000 words on it. I'm not writing a book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I did find Peter Woodcock's early life interesting because I'm adopted as well. And I didn't get adopted until I was three months old. I wasn't three years old. So I did have a lot of problems connecting with my adoptive parents and and people early on. And I even displayed some of the traits of uh, a milder case of RAD, reactive attachment disorder. I didn't want to participate in activities with other kids and be i was really untrusting of adults like i was mm-hmm. the last person to learn to swim ride a bike all those kind of things mm. I was terrified you know my dad would offer do you want to drive the boat all the other kids wanted to do it but i didn't mm. yeah it was interesting yeah like looking back now i i kind of understand what was going on for sure and i've had some counseling obviously since um i i had a lot of unexplainable angry outbursts too when i was a kid i guess you know that whole primal wound thing being taken away from your your mummy
1: very early on. Yeah, and and those are fairly common in uh depressive and uh, anxious individuals, yeah. outbursts and so it was you came by it honestly. Uh for sure. I mean my parents were really loving people. Oh, they're absolutely. Amazing. Folks. Yes. I everything I know about them is uh <laughs> yeah. quite a they're pretty a awesome. fun bunch of people. Yeah,
0: even mom mentioned uh when I was home this summer how uh, when she first, when they first got me, I was adopted on Halloween, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> October 31st. Uh, but when they first got me, I cried a lot and she didn't know what to do. Apparently I cried way more than other kids. Like she just was at a loss. So I think you still do. I don't cry. then. <laughs> I feel like crying right now. Oh, no, you're welcome. Anyway, they took me to doctors to figure out what was wrong and, and, uh, I mean, I've suffered from bouts of depression my whole life pretty mm-hmm. much, you know? You and so me both. Even recently. But I got help. I I think that's where, um, you know, Peter yeah. Woodcock and I tend to go in a, in a very different direction. It's, I think you guys diverge on a
1: lot of different things.
0: Well, yes. I am not a murderer. No. At all. I, I don't even like to step on an ant. This is true. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Holy crap!
1: Yeah, man. So this
0: episode uh, is the last on on child murder we're going to do in a while. Yeah. I, I don't want to do more on I, this <sighs> in this topic for a while. Um, I agree. Yeah. So uh, Yasmin, who who emailed us, mentioned we should cover the Laura Babcock uh, murder, and she was she was the girlfriend of uh, Dylan Millard who. Mm-hmm. Who also murdered Tim Bosma in Ontario, and that case has recently been covered. So it might be a while till we get to it because I want to leave some time. And there's also uh, some more stuff yet to happen with Dylan Millard. Apper- yeah, apparently he's been charged with his father's murder now. Oh, so. really? Oh, yeah. Like, or the, he's being—if he hasn't been charged, he's being investigated very thoroughly for it because they think um, not only <laughs> did he kill Tim Bosma and. Um, his ex girlfriend. Uh, um, he
1: also may have murdered his father for money. Wow! Yeah, I, I think we should wait for a bit more to unfold on that. Then, but what a what a great suggestion! Thanks, yeah. thanks so much for for yeah for bringing sure. that one. Up. So so yes, we will cover it.
0: But I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to see the whole story. Yeah, yeah, have the whole picture. Yeah, for sure. Um, once again, there's there's been so many uh, awesome other podcast hosts who are so kind and and they keep, you know, encouraging us to to carry on and things like that. And um, I mean, we have over twenty five hundred downloads of our podcast already and we've only been at it for three months. So yeah. so that's kind of cool.
1: It really is. It's, it's touching. Yeah,
0: and so anybody who's who has taken the time to listen to us, we really, really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it's awesome that anybody is paying attention at
1: all. S- send us your addresses and Mike will come hug each and every one of you. I might.
0: <laughs> I'd
1: like to, <laughs> but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be talking about myself as one of these creeps. <laughs> Let's pretend like I didn't suggest that. Do not send us your home addresses, please.
0: Well— you might want to eventually because I'm going to do stickers and <gasps> and and I'm looking at T-shirts and stuff like that. So we might be doing that at some point too. I'll, I'll give you my address now. I know where you live. Oh, jeez. <laughs> How scary was <laughs> like that? that you can, I'm scared. Right?
1: Yeah. Okay. Huh. Well. These heavy topics
0: though. Yeah. Jeez, so I, it, so next time it won't be so heavy. LSD isn't as heavy. You know, it'll... Yep. It will be related to CIA and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's still some dark poutine. It's it's Canadian for sure.
1: Absolutely. I mean I, I think it's important to try to uh, – we can't consistently do these stories that are so personally difficult to uh, research and go over. I mean it's uh, – I, I love – humor i love levity i love to yeah, i need I, to have a little i, more I think of that, it's I think. it's i never joke in in the podcasts or or try to be funny for the sake of belittling anybody who's been traumatized i just think it's important. no you edit that out <laughs> i just think i just think it's important you have to balance such terror and such trauma yeah. hopefully with some levity, something to bring you out of that. So I find it important to inject levity, and uh, but with cases like today and, and the last podcast we did, like it, it's it's hard to even uh, feeling uh, motivated to to laugh or, or yeah. bring a joke into it. And so it, we need to be able to to balance out yeah. emotion. I didn't get into it just for all the all the like the dark.
0: Dark, 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 dark stuff. I mean, I like the dark history too. Uh, Bigfoot is something I want to tackle. Yeah. There's, there's some interesting developments in in
1: Canada uh, around the Bigfoot story. So, but, but it's not uber dark, Putin.
0: No, no, but it's still pretty dark. It, it's
1: oh, well, like case in point, there's, to there's state, some monster in
0: the in the woods. Yeah.
1: Well, that, oh, okay. I see where you. I was just talking about today to this podcast and the other ones but no without it out uh, uh uh bigfoot's in very dark Pro- yeah. probably doesn't have very much of a sense of humor well you never know Pro- probably quite it's, it's probably quite emo <laughs> <laughs> listens to <laughs> listens to what the smiths
0: oh <laughs> listens to a lot of the smiths and Bauhaus girl girlfriend in a coma He
1: <laughs> uh. reads a lot of edgar Allan poe <clears throat>
0: the raven Nevermore.
1: yeah Yeah. Uh, pretty much the origins goth is bigfoot i've made that conclusion okay yeah anyways
0: yep if you would like to learn more about this and other episodes of dark poutine or check out the inside of scott's head (laughs) you probably don't want to do that anyway but uh head on over to our website www.darkpoutine.com and if you have story ideas like the one we mentioned earlier and questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us via email at dark at podcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tell your friends about us. And I think that is a big part of why we've had any success at all is because people are actually doing that. So cool. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sub- subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory. Uh, like iTunes, where you can leave a five-star review or a comment. Um, Some people say they don't like iTunes and they don't use it, but we're on Podbean, so darkpoutine.podbean.com. That's where you can find our podcast, and you can subscribe to us there. Uh, I don't think you have to even really sign up for anything, but I use personally, I used an app called Pocket Casts, which I find is much better than... Uh, the iTunes app which mm. has been unsubscribing people from stuff lately oh really oh it's ridiculous mm. anyway leave us a leave us a review drop us a line every little bit helps and helps us to keep this thing moving forward and,
1: and I'll, I'll even promote myself here oh, shit. we've talked I've talked about photography a few oh, times in here no. yep uh, if you're curious about my photography yeah www.sdhpx in Scott Douglas heavenlynoy pics dot com oh my goodness yeah scott's yeah.
0: cameras are broken they don't take pictures in color
1: oh i'm sorry you don't understand art <laughs> black and white who's art uh you stumped me yeah it's not i don't art, know i don't know apparently art. i don't know him either but go check out my photography yeah do it scott scott likes to uh
0: He's 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 being a little humble. He likes to take pictures of bands and things like that. He and I have both done that, but he he's stuck with it a lot longer than I have and uh he's taken some pictures of some some pretty cool bands. So if yeah. you if you want to, that's a good place to go check things out. And plus, you know, pictures of other people in black and white.
1: <laughs> I think there may be three color photos on my site, but you know, anyways, yeah. go find out yourself. Tell me tell me how many color you find. There you go.
0: Uh, yeah, and in, in the show notes is Scott's Twitter handle as well. So follow him there and and look at his black and white photos there. I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Anyway, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple.
1: Thanks, everybody. Bye.